So from our main Fusion podcast, you'll know that Fusion is just really hard. Although potentially miraculous in terms of working towards zero carbon, so worth every effort. And it's looking like those efforts are indeed starting to pay off. From high-velocity projectiles, lasers, fusion engines, levitation and magnetic bottles, to temperatures of almost absolute zero, and those many times hotter than the sun, in the same room. This podcast delves into the different technology candidates that aim to solve the intractable problem of fusion. I'm Angela Lamont, and as a science broadcaster, my life is pretty much spent in awe, talking to people right at the forefront of what they do, and often beyond the forefront of what I ever thought possible. Much of the awe is due to the fact that anyone, frankly, starts on a project at all that at the beginning must seem completely impossible. So tell us a little bit about how fusion came about in terms of at what point did mankind start to think that they could harness fusion energy? Mark Henderson, electron cyclotron section leader at ITER. About 100 years ago, mankind was just understanding the concepts of uh, nuclear energy, fission, fusion. The original person who thought about fusion was Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington. And he surmised that if we could tap the energy source of the sun, then we would be able to have basically a clean energy source that would last for eternity. And mankind has slowly progressed since that time in working in the 1950s when we had our first fusion experiments to JET, the Joint European Tokamak in Cullum, England, which uh, achieved effectively break-even, amount of energy in equals the amount of energy out, and that was back in the 1990s. And now we're going to the next step, which hopefully will get a tenfold increase on energy production, and that is with ITER. Another aspect of fusion, which most people don't think about, is that in most cases, it's not a competitive field in which we hold back our little secrets. And fusion has been like that for the past 60, 70 years, where it is really humanity trying to work together to be able to solve this energy crisis for humanity. I'm Ian Chapman. I'm the chief executive of the UK Atomic Energy Authority. Fusion's probably the most collaborative field of science in the entire world. We're now building a, a fusion machine called ITER in the south of France, which has participation from essentially every major state in the world. It's the most collaborative science project ever undertaken by humankind. And it will demonstrate, we hope, that, that fusion really works on a commercial scale and can produce a lot more energy out than you have to put in to get the reaction going in the first place. Because everything is so hot, it needs to be done in a very special container. And most people are using tokamaks. But what is that? So a tokamak, which is what ITER is, looks like a very large donut that's hollow in the middle. And then we wrap magnetic coils around that to create this magnetic field. And inside of that donut is this gas that we heat to 150 million degrees Celsius. And when you make a fuel that hot, it turns into a state of, of matter we call a plasma. So it goes solid, liquid, gas, then plasma. So it's a really, really, really hot energetic ball of gas. You obviously can't allow it to touch anything because if it touches any materials, they'll just instantly melt or ablate. 
So instead, you need to levitate that wobbling energetic ball of gas away from the walls of the reactor. And we do that using very large magnets. So we create a sort of magnetic cage that holds this fusion fuel steady and stationary and allows this hot ball of gas to fuse and to produce energy. The first experimental device that we were doing back in the 1950s was an extremely very small device that was maybe 20, 30 centimeters by 20, 30 centimeters. This progressed to jet, which is about, I believe it's about three meters in height. And now ITER will be roughly 20 meters by 20 meters. I'm fitted within a large vacuum chamber that holds the uh, superconducting magnets that are at liquid helium temperatures. One ironic thing is that we, we talk about 150 million degrees Celsius as the core temperature in the plasma. If you move roughly about four or five meters away, you get to a superconducting magnet, and that's at four degrees Kelvin. So you're going from nearly the coldest point in the galaxy to the hottest point, uh, just within a very, very short distance of a few meters. And that's one of the challenges that we face. The tokamaks that we have in the world today, like JET and like ITER is designed to be, so they have quite a big hole in the middle of them. And that hole is not hugely efficient because you pay a lot of money for the magnets that go down the middle of that hole, but you don't make the best use of the magnetic field. So a way of optimising the use of the magnetic field, which is really what you pay for in fusion, is to squash the device closer so that it looks quite round, spherical, with a very narrow hole down the middle. So if you imagine an apple with the core taken out the middle, a cored apple, so there's a very narrow gap down the middle and the fuel is then very close to that gap. And that's making the most efficient use of the magnetic field and driving down the cost and the scale. I'm David Kingham. I'm Executive Vice Chairman of Tokamak Energy. It turns out that these spherical tokamaks have other advantages of very high efficiency in the sense of achieving a very high plasma pressure for a given magnetic field. But the device has a particular crucial challenge of getting very high magnetic fields, very high current densities in the center column of the device. And the breakthrough there is that the latest generation of high temperature superconductors will deliver these extremely high current densities and very strong magnetic fields in the center of a spherical tokamak. So the, the field strengths we know we can now achieve are about twice the field strength that will be used in the ITER tokamak in, in southern France. So we're basically saying, if you can get your magnetic bottle to be stronger and more efficient, then it can be smaller. And if it can be smaller, then the cost of developing the technology is reduced. The speed at which you can develop the technology is increased. And you can tackle this very difficult challenge of fusion energy more quickly and also with an approach that is going to deliver commercially viable fusion more rapidly and more reliably. Then by the middle of this decade, we aim uh, to go on and produce a net energy gain in our fusion power demonstrator. So what we are, we are aiming at with our fusion power device is something which will be about 30-fold smaller than bitter and at least 30-fold cheaper to enable commercially viable fusion to happen.
I find it interesting that you decided to approach fusion in a completely different way to the rest of the industry. No tokamak and a completely different process. Nick Hawker, CEO and CTO of First Light Fusion. Inertial fusion is quite different in concept. I like to say it's more like an internal combustion engine. It's a pulsed process. It's not a steady, always burning process. You inject some fuel, you spark it, it burns and it releases energy and you have to repeat that at a given frequency in order to actually generate power. So the essence of inertial fusion is basically there's an implosion and you're turning kinetic energy into internal energy of the plasma. And then that produces a big pulse of fusion energy. And the, the way that we do that, we use a high velocity projectile and we call it projectile fusion. So we fire a high velocity projectile, it will fly for a, a short distance and then it hits into something that we call the target. And inside the target is a little fuel pellet, which is filled with fusion fuel, deuterium and tritium. And the job of the target is to focus the energy of the projectile effectively into the fuel capsule. And it's the target, which is the secret source of our idea. Our mission is to find the target design that works and gets to positive energy. And with your method, what are the major challenges to the traditional magnetic contained fusion that you can reduce or even circumvent using projectile fusion? If you look at the rest of the power plant, there is actually a resource constraint, but only for magnetic fusion. So magnetic fusion, uh, you have to keep the magnets cold and uh, those big cryogenic systems need a lot of helium in order to work. And if you look at the design for ITER and how much helium it would use, there's only enough helium in the world to build a single digit number of power plants like that. That's a problem. Now our design doesn't have any magnets and doesn't have any cryogenics. So that's a problem which simply doesn't apply. Also, our key kind of competitive advantage is that we can design it in silico, we can test it rapidly because it's a physically small thing. We can iterate and we can, we can move quickly. But that's what our investors see in us, is a different approach to the technology which gets away from the need for iterating the design of these huge complex machines. We have more to prove on the physics side. We're open and honest about that. It's a new idea, and that means the level of proof for that new idea is less developed than the level of proof that the physics of a tokamak can scale to a power plant. So looking ahead to the future, how do you see fusion being deployed? Would it be fewer larger plants? Would it be multiple small plants? How would it work? Christophe Junion, Atkins Engineering Company, working on the ITER project. We're still somewhere from knowing what is the best answer and different options and different paths have different advantages. What is quite important is not to oppose one set of research to the others. All of them feed off each other. But yes, a number of decisions will eventually have to be taken, some of them taken by the market. Um, the first one is, do you do big things? Or do you actually do loads of small things? And this is a tension that you are seeing across all kind of energy generating. Time will tell. I'm Bogdan Gadjea. I'm the lead analyst for the power and mobility area in BP's Technology Futures team. We have mapped out the whole technology landscape when it comes to nuclear fusion. And there are many, many different paths. The Tokamak path is the most advanced one, where, and most of the funding is going that route. The other paths, on paper, they have advantages and disadvantages, just like all technologies. 
but we found them to be significantly less advanced and less well-funded. Probably the biggest cost challenge for nuclear fusion is to reduce the uh, capex for the actual plant. Nuclear fusion plants will have to be very, very large, so gigawatt plus scale. Now that is different from some of the startups that are pursuing a strategy to build small modular fusion reactors. You've got laser-based research, you've got uh, stellarators, you even got a system like the one dev developed in Canada by General Fusion, which is, which is looking at some sort of compression wave to give you a better confinement and therefore uh, reduce the temperature you need to get your plasma at. Um, I honestly can't tell you which one will be the right answer, but what I can tell you is to find the technical solutions to that to those really complex challenges we're facing, we will end up trying things that doesn't work and we will end up learning from each each option that have been tried. I think the, the energy mix in the future has to be a balanced portfolio. I always say it's like essentially everything in the world. If you're, if you're an investor, you never put all of your money in one investment. And why you would think that the energy mixture would be any different? The really important thing is that you minimise as much as possible the energy sources which produce carbon. And you have to remember that today, still 80% of our energy needs are met by carbon producing sources. And we have to get away from that reliance on producing carbon. And that's why I think fusion will be a really important part of that carbon free portfolio in the future. 80% carbon producing sources in our global energy mix really just won't cut it in the future. But all new ways of producing energy are well, they're just really difficult. So it's good to know that not only is fusion research and development advancing at a good pace now, but there are still more options to explore and more potential ways of bringing that 80% figure down. To zero? I doubt it, in my lifetime at least. But since when did that ever stop scientists and engineers from achieving the seemingly impossible? This was a BB Technology Outlook production. Focused on fusion technology special.